two words I want to give you today as we start. And, and if you're taking notes inside your bulletin, you can write those down. But the, the two words really are this, and this is what I want you to ponder on. It is, send me. Send me. As we start off this new year, I think that this is really the foundation that I know uh, for the student ministry, for my life, for, for others, really where I want us to be and having an understanding of, of who God is, what God wants, and what we do with what God wants from us. And really the outcome today that I hope for all of us as we look into the scripture and as we see the act that Isaiah took when he stood before the throne room of God is that we simply follow the phrase in the the two words, send me. You know, we hear uh, this thing called peer pressure. You know, we, we hear that especially with students. We, we hear it throughout our life and we think of peer pressure as a bad thing. But the reality is, is that there is such a good thing or such a thing as good peer pressure. You know, oftentimes in life, people will want you to do something and, and you encourage them to do that, especially if it is something that is good. Now, in my life, uh, I was thinking about this, and, and one of the things that I absolutely hate, uh, above all things, is I, I hate heights. You know, I hear stories of people who jump out of airplanes and stuff like that, and I'm sitting there thinking they are crazy. And maybe that's one of you out there, congratulations for being crazy. But I'm not that person. I'm, I'm petrified of heights. Now, this is coming from somebody who's been on top of the World Trade Center, been on top of the Sears Tower, um, and, and as I did those things, I was petrified the whole way. But the reason I did those things is because those things were not necessarily bad, but there's a group of people that encouraged me to do them. One instance was several years ago, we went to England. And when we were in England, we went to St. Paul's Cathedral. Now, way back when, St. Paul's Cathedral was one of the biggest structures in London. And now it's not nearly as big as it once was. But one of the things that they allow you to do when you are at St. Paul's Cathedral is they allow you to walk to the top of St. Paul's Cathedral. Now, I did not want to do this. But when you are the student pastor and there's a bunch of teenagers that are going to do it, guess what? You kind of do it. And so it wasn't anything bad. And so I I followed their lead, especially when Will Bonneville was making me do. He's like, come on, man, you can do this. Don't be a chicken. I'm like, thanks a lot, jerk. And so I followed him and we went up. And so we're walking through these these little hallways and and I'm going up there. There's people around me and I'm making, I mean, I'm I'm acting a fool because I'm I'm scared. I'm legitimately scared. And so I'm talking as I'm going up to the next step, just like I can't believe we're doing this. And everyone around me is thinking, who's this idiot? Please shut up. And so we finally get to the top. Now, there's this one point in St. Paul's Cathedral where you're actually in the dome. So you're, you're standing in the dome and you're looking down and there's a, it's probably, it's about this big and you're looking down and you are exactly 200 feet above the bottom of St. Paul's Cathedral. And so you can look down and you can see that spot. I was about to pass out. But here's what changed for me. When we walked outside, you could walk around the outside of the of the structure and and there's a big wall now that wall to me was great because it was a barrier of protection but when i got outside what i saw was breathtaking because what i could see was all around london you could look out over and you could see the river you could see all the different things around you and all of a sudden i was no longer afraid of what i was doing because of what i was seeing You know, today's passage of scripture, what we see is that Isaiah was taken to a high place. 
A place that could be seen as a place of fear, as a place to, to instill fear into one because he was taken to God's throne room. But yet it was in that place that could seem like a chaotic moment for some where he found peace. See, I really believe today as we look into this passage and as we look into this message of having a high view of God and as we start this new year, I think that it is important for all of us to have a high view of God because here's the thing, a high view of God dictates your view of everything else. See, your worldview determines the decisions that you make. And our hope here at Village Church is that you have a biblical worldview that comes with a proper understanding of who God is according to His Word. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be camping out in this passage today, verses 1 through 8. And it's right there kind of in the middle of the Bible. And so you just kind of open up there and and you'll be able to find it there. But in this passage, what we see is that Isaiah has been given an opportunity to go to God's throne room. And so as we go and we discover having a high view of God, I think the only way that we can do so is by assessing who God is. And I don't think that there is a greater passage in Scripture than this one to allow us to see the character and the nature of our God. So it says here in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Now, there's a lot of different things in this passage that, that are going to be kind of confusing when we look at that. We, we see burning coal being put on someone's tongue. We hear these creatures, the seraphim. So we're going to get to all of that. It'll help us have a better understanding of what Isaiah is going through. But I really believe that if we are going to look at who God is, the first thing we see in this passage is that God is constant. Now, one of the most important phrases in this passage is a phrase that I believe is often overlooked, and it is simply this, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important for two reasons. The first one here is that it allows us to understand the cultural climate. See, King Uzziah was a king that brought great prosperity to the people. During his time, there was great wealth. 
You know, there was an, uh, an economic boom. Now, the reason for that is because some of the powerful nations surrounding Israel were weak during this time. So we see Assyria was weak. Egypt to the south was weak. So what ended up happening was when a leader came in who was actually doing something, he was allowed to establish himself as a great leader leading a great nation. So what happened is there was great wealth that came into Israel. And so the people were prosperous under his leadership. Now, that's important for us to understand because when we look at this passage, what it tells us that it is in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, if you think about this from a cultural standpoint, what you've got to realize is this, is that if your great leader is dead, what does that mean for the people that they are leading? Well, I would simply think that what it means is this, is that the people now are scared. See, Isaiah in this passage wants to remind the people of Israel that their great leader is gone. I mean, talk about a Debbie Downer moment. But it is a significant moment because not only does he want them to realize who is gone, but he wants them to know who is there, who is alive. See, when we look at this passage, we see and understand who Uzziah was. But what happened as a result of Uzziah's reign did not end well. So yes, there is a moment of prosperity, but towards the end of his reign... There's a lot of issues going on. We see in 2 Kings what happened. And I'll kind of paraphrase it for you. See, what happened was King Uzziah listened for the most part to the prophet Zechariah. Now, Zechariah came in and he brought the teachings of God. And so he listened to those teachings. As a result of being obedient to God, there was prosperity. But there was one thing that Uzziah did not do. It said that he did not disregard the high places. Now, what does that mean, the high places? Well, what it simply means is this, is that all throughout Israel, there were still places that people were sacrificing to false gods. See, Uzziah is just like any one of us. And I believe that this is something that leadership in the church, I believe this is something that all Christians we face. Is that we want to obey God to a point... But we are so afraid of not being liked by our peers, not being accepted by society, that what we do is we back away from certain issues and we don't follow what the Scripture says. What happened as a result of Uzziah's disobedience was this. For the last ten years of his reign, he was bedridden. He was bedridden because he was given leprosy. He was unclean. He lived in his own house. Nobody tended to him because he was unclean. His son had to take over. So now what ends up happening is there's turmoil taking place. Assyria all of a sudden is gaining more power. And now the people are scared of what's to come. See, that's the first verse. The first verse part of the first verse but the second part of the first verse is this is isaiah reminds them though you have a king who is in the ground you have a god who is above all 
says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. See, Isaiah wants us to understand that though we have an earthly king and have earthly leaders that will fail us, we have a God who is constant and who is constantly on his throne. So we can come here today as a people of hope, knowing that we don't stand worshiping earthly leadership. Yes, we follow out of respect, but we don't worship them because they do not last. What do we do? We worship our God. We worship our God because he is consistent. We worship our God because he is on his throne. So we know we must follow him. The Bible says, and I love how the psalmist writes, he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Forever. Yeah, that's the key in all of it, is that we see our God is eternal. Our God will not fail. And let me tell you this, our God does not operate outside of his nature. Well, what's his nature? We see, well, God, God is constant. But the other thing that we see in this passage as we look at God's nature is this, is that God is glorious and he is magnificent. You know, I, I look at this passage and, and one of the things that, that I like to do is I, I like to talk. You know, if you've been around me, I like to tell stories. There was a girl that I liked in, in high school and I hung out with her a good bit. And I remember I would be with her and she said, I hope one day, uh, she said, one day you're going to make a good grandfather. And I was like, okay, that's a weird compliment, I guess. And she said, well, because you have so many good stories. I was like, okay. I don't know how to take that, but sure, you know. And so one of the things when you tell stories, and everybody knows this, is is the, the one thing that you absolutely hate when telling a story is when you see the audience just begin to kind of give you that awkward look, and then you realize you have to follow it up with the one phrase, well, I guess you had to bend there, you know. And, and so what ends up happening is, is really one of two things, or one, a couple things there, and that is, is that one your story just may not be that good. Um, two, you just may not be a very good storyteller. Three, honestly, you really did just have to be there. And so you're kind of stuck. You know, when I look at what Isaiah has to do here in this passage, is Isaiah has to describe who God is. I mean, that's a pretty lofty task. That God has, has literally taken Isaiah to his throne room and he says, you are going to pin what you see. One of the things is you look at the, the, the throne room experiences all throughout scripture, and there's not that many, is that you see different phrases like this. You'll, you'll hear phrases like likeness had the appearance of, had the likeness of. See, what I want you to understand is that when we are given a task to describe God, we are given the task to describe the indescribable. But Isaiah would have been one who had credibility. See, most scholars think that Isaiah grew up in an aristocratic household. So he had some wealth in his family. And as a result, many times what would happen is they would be invited into the king's quarters. So if there is anyone who is going to be credible enough to be able to pin what he saw, it would be Isaiah because Isaiah would have been in the king's quarters at some point in time during his life. So when he came in, Isaiah would have known what a throne looks like. Isaiah would have been able to look around and, and realize that kings have servants. 
that there are people who are constantly waiting on the king, that there are actually people in the presence of the king who are worshiping the king. So that the king has people who are there that are actually worshiping him. And so Isaiah would have been able to know how to put this down and describe what he saw. But here's the thing, he still couldn't. He still couldn't because our God is that glorious. He still couldn't because our God is that magnificent. So what Isaiah does is he describes it to the best of his ability. And so what do we see when he talks about God's throne room? He says, and the train of the robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. So let's go to the throne room. Let's go and look and see a little bit of what Isaiah saw. And the first thing that we see here is Isaiah talks about the train of his robe. Now, we don't think along these terms today we don't live in a, in a monarchy we don't we don't really look at kings you know when i think of kings i think of of medieval times you know you come in you got the gesture and all that stuff i mean that's just kind of where my mind takes me but what we see here is there is significance in this train you know in modern times we think of a train of a robe we think of a bride coming down the aisle with this beautiful beautiful uh, train that she has But see, what we realize here in this passage is the train represented power. See, the longer your train, the greater your power. What does Isaiah describe to us? Well, he says that the train of the robe filled what? Filled the temple. Honestly, we don't know how big this temple is, but I guarantee you that it is bigger than any structure that we've ever seen here in this earth. So what do we know about our God? We know that our God has great power. His train filled the temple. One of the things that he does not tell us is that he he does not describe an end to the train. See, our God's power is limitless. So we see God and we see a powerful, powerful being. One that has more power than anything that has ever been created. But the other thing that we see here in God's throne room is that there are these servants called seraphim. You know, the Bible describes these angels that are the servants in the quarter of the Lord. You know, one of the things that I found very interesting about the seraphim is this, is that the seraphim actually means burning creatures. Now, if there's anything that we know about our God, we know this, that Hebrews 12, 29 says, Our Lord is a consuming fire. You know, we look back in the Exodus, we see that, that God led the Israelites out of slavery as, as a burning cloud by day and a burning f- pillar of fire by night. Our God is a consuming fire. John 1, 4 through 5 says, In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Our God is bright. Our God is light. And these burning creatures who glow, who are bright, in the presence of God, still had to cover their face. Why? Because our God is that powerful. You know, the best way that I can kind of describe it to us is it would be like stars 
small stars around our giant star, the sun. Having to cover their face because they are in the presence of the king. So what do we learn from these seraphim? Well, we learn this, that even the most glorious of creatures are nothing in the sight of God. We also learn this, that when we come into worship, we come with reverence. It says with six wings that they had, with two they covered their face. With two they flew, and with two they covered their feet. You know, the parallel in Scripture that we see as far as covering their feet is simply this, is that in the presence of the Lord, they knew that they were on holy ground. You know, when Moses was standing by the burning bush where the Holy Spirit came to him, he said, take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. When we come to worship, when we come to gather, when we are together before the Lord, we should do so with reverence. What does that mean? That means we should prepare ourselves for worship. And I'll be the first to admit that I do not always do that. You know, when it comes to Sunday morning, I am hitting the snooze just like everybody else because I I want to continue sleeping. Like, that's my act of worship. God, let me roll over to the other side. Amen. You know, so I stay in bed as long as I can. Then I come to church. And and when I get here, I'll try to go over to the children's area because I I go over there and I can kind of work for a little bit and get my mind awake. And then I'll come over here and start talking to everybody because I just don't quite want to see y'all yet. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm waking up in the morning. So I'm not really preparing myself the way that I should, because in reality, I should be getting up. I should be having some time at home. And then as I'm coming to church, I am preparing my heart through prayer to come here to be and to gather and to worship. You know, we see that the seraphim had that right as they prepare themselves as they are entering into the presence of the Lord. But what we also see here is that when we are in the presence of the Lord, worship always follows It says in this passage that they cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of His glory. Worship always comes as a result of being in the presence of the Lord. Well, really ask this question, or it really uh, wants me to ask this question is, is this, what is worship then? What is worship? You know, everything that I just described for us is, is a, a Sunday morning experience. But really, in reality, is, is that just worship? You know, is worship coming here? Is it, is it watching James play the guitar? Uh, is, it, is it listening to the band? Is it coming here clapping our hands a little bit? That is an act of worship. But is that truly what the Bible says is worship? No, it, it definitely is not. See, the Bible tells us in Romans twelve one, as it talks about worship, he, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What is worship? Worship is simply this. Worship is giving our life to honor Christ. Well, what does that mean? That means that every day when I wake up, I simply say, God, I am going to let you lead me. It means that at your work, you act differently than those around you. 
on the teams that you play for. You act differently than those around you. The things that you say, the things that you do, those things exemplify the fact that you have God in your life. Now, I listened this week, and I thought this was very interesting, as, as, uh, and some of you don't take it personally, but uh, it really does set a good example, I think, because I was listening to the, uh, the Don Labertard show on ESPN, and, and they were talking about Dabo Sweeney. Now, as you saw last week in the football game, Dabo got mad at Kelly Bryant, likely so. But one of the things that I thought was very interesting is the whole debate was over whether he should have lost his cool that way. And I thought one of these things was very interesting to me. As they said, well, aren't coaches supposed to chew out their players when they make a mistake? And the guy said, well, but Dabo declares that he lives by a higher standard. You know, I thought, that is true. This is a man that I do believe has given his life to Christ and has set a great example for other coaches in how he does live his life. And I thought, you know, it may not necessarily be fair, this guy's assessment, but is it true according to God's word? Yes, it is. We live by a higher standard when we claim Christ in our life. So what does that mean? It means that people look at us differently. People will hold us to a higher standard, rather, whether we like that or not. Why? Because Christ holds us to a high standard. What does the standard, what is the standard that Christ holds us? He says, be holy as I am holy. Are we going to make mistakes? Very much so. Yes, we are going to make mistakes. We are human. Paul talks about that. When he says, I don't know why I do the things that I do. The things that I don't want to do, I do. The things that I I do want to do, I don't do. And so we have this turmoil between flesh and, and spirit that are going on in our life. But ultimately, because we love Christ, we own up to our mistakes. Ultimately, because we love Christ... We want to worship Him with our life. And so we live differently, we act differently, we talk differently. Why? Because we are different. Because we are not citizens of this world, but we are citizens of the world that is to come. The one that we see here in this passage. Because Christ has given us life. So when we look at this passage, what we see is that our God is constant. We see that our God is glorious and magnificent. But the last thing that we see in this passage that I hope you grasp this new year is this. Is that God is salvation. And I could only imagine what it would be like for me standing in the presence of God. I'd be freaking out. I mean, who wouldn't be? I mean, everything that's been described, I'm sitting there thinking like, okay, I'm not supposed to be here. And if I'm walking into this place, like something's going to happen and I'm going to get struck down or something because like I, I know who I am. I know that in the presence of a holy God that I am not worthy to be there. And so I sit there and think, well, my goodness, what did Isaiah do? Well, the Bible tells us here in this passage, when Isaiah was born before the Lord, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What happened to Isaiah was simply this, that in the presence of a holy God, we realize that we are no longer holy. That we are not as good as we think we are. 
You know, I've used this illustration before. When, when I first started in student ministry and I was playing basketball, I, I'd play with some of the middle school guys back out here. And man, it was so much fun playing with middle schoolers because you could pack them. They, they could not stop you. You could dunk over them, especially when it's on a six-foot goal. And so, I mean, you walk away and you feel pretty good about yourself. But then on Thursday nights, when Ryan and I are going down to, to First Baptist Church, which we've not done in like five years, but when we were doing that and we were playing full-court basketball with some guys, who played overseas, all of a sudden, we weren't as good as we thought we were. Why? Because the standard of excellence changed. See, when we stand in the presence of an almighty God, all of a sudden, our standard of excellence is a lot different, isn't it? And we realize that we are not that holy. So what happens as a result? We can do one of two things. We can go to the one who is holy, or we can flee his presence. What did Isaiah do? Well, Isaiah realized his sin and he said, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. And what did he do? He surrendered to God. Why did he surrender to God? Why did he not tremble? Because he knew that in the spot that most would deem unsafe, that it was actually the safest place to be. It was in the midst of this powerful moment where he found peace. Why? Because our God is good. Psalm 136.1 says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Our God might be powerful. Our God might be glorious. Our God might be magnificent. But He is good. And He is our salvation. You know, I've battled through this in my life because the reality of it all is simply this. Though we read the facts, do we really trust that they are true? When I was 16 years old, I wrestled with this. God started working in my life. I was absolutely miserable for about two weeks in my life. I was ready. I was ready to be done. But it was that summer I went to a camp. And at that camp, I remember this phrase distinctly. Some of you have made Jesus your Savior, but is He your Lord? I sat in the corner of that gym, and as they opened up for a time of invitation, I sat there and I literally rocked back and forth, battling with God in my mind as to whether or not I was going to follow Him. God won that night. And I've never regretted it since. God is on His throne. He is constant. Nothing he does is inconsistent to who he is. Who is he? He is glorious. He is magnificent. But lastly, this new year, he is your salvation. Will you let him be that salvation in your life today? If that is you inside your bulletin, there is a slip that we mentioned earlier. And you can just fill that out and say, I want to pray to give my life to Christ. Maybe for some of you, you've not been living for Christ. But now is this great time as we start a new year that God's mercies are new every day. And so my hope for you, maybe is just simply say in Matthew, I've not been doing what I need to do. Now I need to start back. 
Maybe it's getting involved in a small group. Maybe it's, it's serving in one of the ministries. I don't know what it is, but if God has put that on your heart, don't walk away here today without declaring the words that Isaiah said, send me. God has called you, so let him take you and look at the great things that will happen when you let him lead in your life today. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask today, Lord, I ask, God, that you work in the life of those here, God. I pray, Jesus, that that you really just guide them, show them exactly what it is that you want them to do. And so, Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you lead. And, Father, I pray as the hymn says, wherever you lead, I go. And so, Father, whatever it may be, I pray, God, that we would be obedient. Obedient. And that you would send us Send us in our homes. Send us in our jobs. Send us in our schools. So that we will glorify and worship you. So Jesus, we simply say thank you. And we cry out to you. That you are a powerful and an all-loving God. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.